Hello, everybody. This is Kevin McDonald, executive producer for New Mexico in Focus, and this is the podcast version of the show for Friday, March 6th of 2020. Got a lot of great stuff in this week's show. We've got an update on the novel coronavirus in New Mexico. We've got a great discussion about socialism, what it actually means in terms of the upcoming uh, presidential election specifically. But we kick things off this week with a line and a really important discussion about how much New Mexicans know and need to know about immigration and customs enforcement in our state. New Mexico's population centers, Las Cruces, Albuquerque, Santa Fe, all have status as at least immigrant-friendly and some as actual sanctuary cities. Now, has that put a target on their backs for federal government enforcement agencies? The Santa Fe reporter's Catherine Lewin asked that question last week, noting that the state's two Democratic senators are asking for arrest data to better track what the somewhat secret movements of immigration and customs enforcement, known as ICE, of course. That's where we start with the line opinion panel. Each of our four guests signed up to research this week's topics and offer their informed opinions. First up, we welcome to the line table former New Mexico House Minority Whip Daniel Foley. We're also joined by Christine Sierra, author and former UNM political science professor. Welcome back after a while. Julianne Grimm's here. She's editor and publisher of the Santa Fe Reporter. And we welcome former state senator and another line regular, Diane Snyder, to the table. Thank you all for being here. Julianne, I just told you a newspaper it doesn't track arrest data by county. So how are you finding out what these enforcement actions are about, the number, the actual numbers. We can't find out the actual numbers, ah. not yet. Mm -hmm. um, it's very difficult. Um, I think you're referring to, we reported in the, this story just uh, uh, earlier in the week that um, we had two uh, members of Congress saying, we know there have been upticks in ICE activity in New Mexico, in Albuquerque. And so we wanted to look into that a little bit. And we referred to some previous research we did where we had asked ICE to give us a list of people who had been snatched up and uh, taken off the streets in Santa Fe and put through the deportation process. And mm -hmm. ICE's response was, well, no one's actually removed from your county. They're actually removed from the court in El Paso, and so we can't provide you the information the way that you've asked for it. So we're really curious if you know they're going to be able to provide Congress, or at least two members of Congress, right. with the information they asked for. That's right. Um, but really when it comes to the phrase that you talked about, whether mm -hmm. you say immigrant-friendly or whether you talk about sanctuary city, that's a shorthand in our state for jurisdictions that don't cooperate with the federal government, meaning that um, they don't welcome, you know, in the schools or in the um, institutions that are run by the city or the county government, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't keep the federal government from looking at public documents that you or I could look at mm -hmm. to find information that help the agents target people that they want to target. And so, our um, immigrant right activists in Santa Fe said, you know, don't sleep on this idea that we are sanctuary and everything's okay. We have to stand up for our neighbors if that's what we believe. And um, ICE is still alive and well and serving warrants and trying to get, you know, people in custody. That's right. The senators that we just referred to, Senators Heinrich and Udall, sent a letter to the acting uh, uh, director and interesting points they make that they're getting information that folks are using these quasi-warrant type things. We have to be careful here because these are administrative orders, not judicial 
orders. That's a clear difference. They're not warrants. And so folks are confused about who they can let into their homes, who they can let into their businesses. They're playing a little game here that's it's tough to track down, isn't it? Well, it's to ICE interests to right. be successful in tar who they target and being able to deport them. Right. Uh, but yes, there is legally a, a difference between an administrative warrant and a judicial warrant. And regardless of whether the uh, local law enforcement uh, does not want to cooperate for various reasons, but, but to to insist on uh, serving the larger public interest in terms of public safety, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, they would have to honor judicial warrants. But let me that that people have to honor judicial warrants. Mm -hmm. um, the spillover effect is what is also creating a lot of mobilization on the part of immigrant rights groups, in that. You might target somebody who is a criminal alien in our midst, uh, undocumented, and get them ready for deportation, go after them. Mm -hmm. But ICE is also, we get reports from this from on the ground immigrant groups here in Albuquerque and the Dreamers in Santa Fe, mm -hmm. that it's what, you know, the collateral spillover effect, mm -hmm. that if people are in the household or nearby or whatever, they will also in right. inquire and pick them up. Mm -hmm. But I wanna, in, I wanna just take a, a, just a quick moment mm -hmm. to talk about how we've been here before. And one of the issues is the priority of enforcement. What areas do you want to engage in aggressive enforcement mm -hmm. uh, and deportation orders, removal orders. In the 1990s, the Border Patrol entered the Lores Gonzalez Elementary premises and wanted to pick up, with the mother in tow, to pick up two of her kids, take them all, which they did, and then put them on the bus to Ciudad Juarez, saying that they were illegal and they had to deport them. The principal of Dolores Gonzalez at first objected to the Border Patrol coming onto those premises. The Border Patrol just went over her. Wow. In the, what she did is she called the news media and it became a big old story. Senators Domenici and Bingaman were furious about this happening on the elementary school premises. And so they insisted that uh, INS at the time mm -hmm. uh, meet with community people and figure out a way, as our current senators say, a way forward. So an INS community relations board was set up. Mm -hmm. It included members of the community, INS, and the senator's staffers, and eventually Congressman Schiff's staffer mm -hmm. to give it some weight. Mm -hmm. I was on that board and we had monthly meetings with INS to discuss immigrant rights groups, Catholic charities, sure. a bunch of people, service organizations, and so on, mm -hmm. and INS came. And out of that, Gene, there was a memo from the El Paso district to not, INS will not engage in enforcement activities in schools, public places, religious, uh, religious congregations and synagogues, and so on. So we have been there I would urge the senators and the community people to readdress that time right. when we could have bipartisan buy-in to having some kind of a forum mm -hmm. to air our grievances. Mm -hmm. I love that, that's a good story, interesting times. Uh, we're down to about three minutes. I'm gonna split it between you guys. 
Um, the idea that in the letter from the senators that ICE enforcement officers are also wearing, quoting here, wearing deceptive uniforms to appear as local police when they knock on doors. You know, it just seems like they're taking these extra steps that it just is a little bit beyond here. How does that strike you in your gut? I, I, I'm curious. When I was kind of surprised, mm -hmm. I would have thought that their uniform was, was serious enough right. because if you're an illegal immigrant mm -hmm. or, or, or being investigated, you already have enough fear in you that anything in a uniform, I believe, would, would, would upset you or direct, uh, call, get your attention. Um, I'm, I'm a little concerned about, I know that ICE is trying to do their job. Mm -hmm. They're trying to do what their superiors are telling them to do. Are they being a little over exuberant in doing it? I don't know. But I do believe that the senators, our senators, have called for a meeting similar to what you were talking about. Mm -hmm. And uh, the things you just listed, that sounds like a reasonable way to deal with it. And I, th I think they should, instead of making it all new, go back and pull that uh, agreement mm -hmm. and look at it. But let's not make these ICE agents the evil guys. Mm -hmm. They're doing their job. Mm -hmm and they are required to do it. But is it more job. about the how than... than yes, but okay. that's what I'm saying is, yeah. are they stepping over the line? Gotcha. Or are they just, for, or is that what they're being encouraged at a higher level that's to do? That's a good do? point there, yeah. So, but we need to make sure that, because they are part of our community. That's right. Your thoughts on this, interesting. Um, they are doing their job, yeah, but I mean, it's, 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 you know... Way, way too many thoughts to get out in a minute and a half. I'll just say this. You know, they're doing, you know, if, if the U.S. senators don't like what they're doing, change the law. The, one of the problems is the problem we have with this whole immigration issue is Congress fails to act on changing the law. Right. And so change it one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Do something other than making it a partisan deal. At the end of the day, these guys are out doing what they've been hired to do, which is enforce immigration, customization laws, ICE, the ICE folks are. I'm not sure, you know, I mean, showing up in a different uniform. I mean, cops go out all the time in sting operations. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what these, what's going on. Um, you know, I know that sometimes people are told this is what's going on when the investigation happens. It's not really the way it, it goes out mm -hmm. or really the way it comes. But at the end of the day, um, you know, look, we know that both of these two U.S. senators are adamantly opposed to the immigration stuff that's going on. We know that they're not in favor of, of doing the stuff that ICE is out there doing. And we mm -hmm. know that they're not really in favor of addressing the immigration law issue that's creating this backlog problem. And so <clears throat> until we do that, to me, I think it's all just kind of, which I think is the difference between Senator Domenici and Senator Biggerman and, and, and the two senators we got now. Both of those guys saw an issue, sat down bipartisanly, talked about figuring out a way to do it, right. and they addressed well, it. Well, that ship has sailed, though, with this I, current administration. Well, that's no one's well, sitting I think down the with ship, anybody. I think the for, ship sailed you know. before this administration. Mm -hmm. To say that this has become a partisan country since the president's been elected, I think you'd, you had to have had your head in the sand the last 10, 15 years. Mm -hmm. Interesting points there. We're going to take a break with the line. We'll get an update on coronavirus preparations next. When this group returns, we're talking about Republican efforts to grow numbers in southeast corner of our state. All right, up next on the show, it is the novel coronavirus or COVID-19 and an update here in New Mexico. It's the thing that everybody seems to be talking about, whether it's at the grocery store or the doctor's office or work. So far still in New Mexico, no confirmed cases. 
We wanted to get an update, though, on how the state is preparing, and so senior producer Matt Grubb sat down with a state epidemiologist to get the very latest. We talked about Super Tuesday at the top of the show, but that's just about the only thing that's made a dent in media coverage of COVID-19 or coronavirus. On Wednesday, the governor announced New Mexico has a few hundred test kits provided by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, with more hopefully on the way soon. Meanwhile, the state is trying to work with a private lab to develop testing sites across New Mexico. In New Mexico, two people had been tested for the COVID-19 virus as of midweek, with one negative result and one pending. And more tests are being done now. NMIF senior producer Matt Grubbs has more with one of the state's epidemiologists. Dr. Chad Smelzer is a medical doctor. He's also the deputy state epidemiologist, which means that he is a very busy man. So we appreciate your time. Thanks for coming in. Certainly, thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. Um, first, I wanna start in the context of our discussion today, um, we'll say things like COVID-19 and coronavirus. It, can we consider those as the same thing? Well, we should really say novel coronavirus or COVID-19. Okay, And okay. the reason for that is there are coronaviruses that circulate that cause the common cold. This is a bit more severe than those. Those occur each year. Okay, okay. Um, who is most at risk right now for catching novel coronavirus? Well, technically speaking, if you have a new virus and there's not a lot of immunity in your population, everybody's at risk. Um, that doesn't mean that people need to panic. And as a matter of fact, the governor's message yesterday was an excellent one. It's not time to panic, it's time to be prepared. So people um, can all catch the disease, um, and there are certain people in the population who will be at more risk for severe disease. And who are those people? So if they catch it, um, who are those people who would be more at risk? Okay, so the people that are at more at risk that we've seen around the world, as well as in the United States, are um, people at increased age, people who are immunosuppressed, and folks that have certain comorbidities or other diseases that cause them to be more susceptible. Okay. So lung diseases, um, anything that makes you immunosuppressed. Can we say um, something as general as kids or the elderly? So what we know from the initial studies in China, about the first 44,000 or so patients, 80% um, of those, I believe, were in the age of 30 to 79. So we weren't seeing a whole lot in the younger population. I do want to stress that that doesn't mean the younger population can't be infected. So everybody needs to be prepared. Um, but again, as the governor said, it's not time to panic. Um, given that, are you concerned at all about um, the run on things like N95 respirators or hand sanitizer? It is true that we've had some supply chain issues. So a lot of those products are produced in China as well as some other countries that have shut down shipping those products. However, the, the federal government has taken some steps in the United States to increase production domestically. Um, we also um, have a Bureau of Health Emergency Management that's surveying our healthcare facilities at a regular basis um, to assess how much they have, what supply do they have on hand, and then assisting those that have a shortened supply with how to order new ones. Okay. Um, are there things we can do instead? Well, yes, and uh, again, the governor gave a great message yesterday about ways to prevent respiratory pathogens and how they spread in, the, in our communities. And that is to, you know, monitor yourself for illness. If you are ill, we recommend that you don't go to school or to work. Stay home if you're ill, as well as washing your hands regularly. It's very important to wash your hands. 
I think you mentioned a, a run on products. There's been quite a run on hand sanitizer. Well, you don't need hand sanitizer, although it is effective. You can just use warm water and soap. And you need to wash for 20 seconds or more and make sure you get in between your fingers and your thumbs. Okay. Those are the most commonly missed parts of your hand. Um, and wash for an extended period and do that regularly. Um, what does regularly mean to you in the context of a well, day if you're at work? Of course, when you're before and after you're preparing food, as well as, of course, when you're after you use uh, the bathroom. And then if you're in public places, uh, um, it's good to wash your hands regularly. There isn't really a definition of regularly, but frequently during the day is a good idea. So if you're touching things like a lot of doors, um, if you're pumping gas, things like that that other people are touching. That's correct. And so you, you want to just be wary of, the, of how, you use and what you how you use your hands and what you touch. And then another way people spread disease commonly is they touch other people or a surface and then they touch their nose, their eyes, or their mouth. And so people do need to be aware of that. And it's good for respiratory pathogens, so respiratory illnesses at any time, um, to not um, you know, touch your nose and mouth um, and eyes as much as possible. Okay. Um, we heard yesterday that the state has, yesterday being Wednesday in the context of this interview, um, the state now has a few hundred um, COVID-19 testing kits. Mm -hmm. um, more are expected. Um, do we have enough? Well, I want to make it very clear. The important point here and the good news is the, the state has the capacity to test. We also have the capacity to send tests to the CDC if we need backup. So we have, in our minds, an adequate amount or capacity of testing, and we do expect to receive more. Okay. Um, is there something, can you, you know, can you develop your own? I've, I've heard that um, research institutions like the University of New Mexico Hospital um, uh, might develop their own tests in a normal situation. Is that something that's being considered? Yes, and that's a great um, point that you're making. Um, I, in New Mexico, we have a very good or a, an advantage in some respects um, because our biggest uh, reference laboratory is very close to our state public health laboratory. We have a strong working relationship between the laboratories and we've already been in discussions for some time now with the reference laboratory to develop commercial testing in the state. Okay. Are, are there standards, you've worked for the CDC, you told me, are there standards that the CDC has for developing tests that prohibit that right now? It does not prohibit that right now, and there are um, active involvement of the federal agencies in order to, um, it's what it's called is a laboratory developed test, um, or an LDT, okay. and they are, um, there are movement around the country at different refer reference laboratories, excuse me, um, to develop these tests. Okay, um, what do you need from the federal government right now? What's most helpful to you? Um, well, what we need is a lot of what they're doing, and that is um, producing guidance for how to manage patients, how to um, do things like com um, community mitigation to slow the spread of disease. So we're getting lots of information on, on the most up-to-date ways to, to, to control the spread of disease in populations. Um, there's also funding. Funding's always important for a response uh, during an emergency. Um, that's, uh, you know, at Congress right now and getting approved. I don't actually know the stage it's in, but we have had communications that we're going to be receiving some excess funding that we then will apply to uh, this emergency response. Now, the governor has mentioned that she has the capability to authorize um, about three-quarters of a million dollars, it sounds like, in the case of an emergency. 
That's great, and the governor's been, um, as you've seen on the news yesterday, but just um, behind the scenes as well, very supportive um, in this response um, to assure that we have the adequate resources we need um, for our population. Um, you've been with, you said, the Department of Health since 2002, right? Yes, off okay. and on. Okay. Yes. Um, the, during that time, there has been established a, what's called a pandemic influenza plan. Mm -hmm. um, and you were telling me that that informs to a large extent um, what the state does in situations like this. Um, it also sort of lays out what it can do. Um, are there scenarios in which the state would ask school districts to close down? So regarding the pandemic influenza plan, we call it that, but it is a plan that you can adapt to other viruses and other pathogens that are causing widespread disease. And spread so, similarly. And spread similarly. Okay. And so, yes, we are updating that plan regularly and using the components that are appropriate to use for this novel coronavirus. Um, specifically around school closures, there, there um, are parts of that plan as well as guidance from uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention regarding school closures. And we've seen some of those, um, as you may have seen in the news recently in the state of Washington and other places around the world. So we don't live in a vacuum. We live in a connected world. We will monitor how that's worked in those areas and then decide what's best for the state of New Mexico. Okay. Um, the department is holding a couple of, or actually three, um, community meetings. Um, uh, can you tell me a little bit more about the decision um, to hold those meetings on Thursday in Clovis, Roswell, and Las Cruces, gathering people together to tell them about a communicable disease? Well, so as we discussed, uh, as we need to mention, there are no confirmed cases in the state of New Mexico. Um, so it is, um, you know, important for us to get our message out. One of the ways to do that is to bring people together, communicate directly. Um, we would not be doing that should we had widespread um, uh, you know, disease in, in our communities. However, we're not at that point. So I think communicating directly to people is important, as well as getting our message out through other means. So we have a web page that people can go to um, that's both specific for New Mexico, as well as has a lot of links to the guidance from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. And we'll make sure to get that up on our web page too. You. Um, you said uh, no confirmed cases, two tests as of yesterday. One was negative and the other one is pending still, is that correct? Uh, that's correct. I don't have a result for that one today, or this morning. Okay. Um, the, but I would like to say that yes. we are doing quite a bit more testing. Okay. So we, um, we have a, um, many more tests that are pending at our state laboratory. Um, and we have a system in place for monitoring viruses in general. Um, we use it mostly for influenza, but as I said before, with, and similar to the pandemic influenza plan, we can adapt it to monitor what viruses are circulating um, throughout the state. Okay. Um, the, the first test was taken two weeks ago, um, from what I understand. Um, how much does the public need to know? Um, is there a a good reason to sort of keep that under wraps for those two weeks. Um, how much should the public know about the number of people being tested um, and what are the, I guess, the benefits and the risks of imparting that information? Yeah, so I, first of all, the governor's message again yesterday was a really good one. It's not time to panic, it's time to be prepared and, okay. so, and to prepare further. Um, so when you tell people you're testing for something, they get it somewhat excited. Sure. We don't want to keep it from them, but we want to communicate a good message. Um, the other thing is, is that we wouldn't ever want, if we're really worried about the disease, the general public or others descending upon that area for whatever reason, 
we would want people to not necessarily stay completely away, but, but to keep their social distance. And so if we have a, a case detected in the state of New Mexico, we are going to put that message out as soon as we possibly can after that is confirmed. Okay. And when you talk about uh, people descending upon an area, um, is this a scenario like you, like we've seen in Washington State where, where there are a number of people in the same facility? No, I'm just really talking about if, if people want a story or they're curious. Um, and I don't really think that's a very Im important part of what I was saying. Okay. okay. Um, I, I think just, you know, it's important to communicate clearly to people during an emergency. And we don't want something else getting in the way, hysteria, a panic, whatever it is. But I assure you, if we have a case confirmed in the state of New Mexico, that will be made public and we will provide much more messaging around it. Um, so that people understand what's going on. And the governor seemed to indicate yesterday that that seems likely that we'll get a case. Well, I think that what we've seen around the world is that there is spread. And so there certainly is potential in, in the state of New Mexico. Thankfully, we haven't seen it yet. And that's why we need to prepare. So if it, if it does come, we need to be prepared. Dr. Smelser, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Back to the line now, and we have talked a lot on the show in recent months, including when President Trump was here in Rio Rancho, about the Republican desire to make some big inroads in the state in the upcoming general election. And we got a, a glimpse at some of their strategy here recently. They are aggressively, the Republican Party, regressively trying to register Hispanic voters down in the Permian Basin where all that oil and gas production is happening. The line panel talks about the strategy, whether they think it'll work, and how it might impact the overall elections. Welcome back to The Line. New Mexico's Republican leaders are taking to the oil fields in the state's Permian Basin in an effort to register Hispanic voters. This is part of an aggressive strategy to win over Hispanic and Native American voters, not only in southern New Mexico, but throughout the state. And Diane Steve Pierce, chair of the Republican Party of New Mexico, has staked his reputation on a statewide effort that he wants to uh, have all 33 counties have representatives for uh, Hispanic and Native American recruitment. But let's talk about this Permian Basin thing. It seems kind of an interesting strategy. The ask seems pretty simple. You know, we're the GOP party of the, ener of the energy business, so yeah, protect uh, your own interests. Well, you know? I, I'm, uh, quite mm -hmm. truthfully, as somebody who has for years and years and years mm -hmm. helped do voter registration for various groups or locations, the state fair, all these kinds of places. Sure. I was going, darn, that's a good idea. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, it, people, some people have said, oh, well, they're targeting, they want to be Republicans. Well, the law says if the per person being registered wants to register as an independent or a declined state or a, a Democrat, they must be registered that way. Right. And that's fine. But it's like, say, in Albuquerque, you, if you are a Republican group, you don't go to a supermarket in the South Valley right. and sit out front <laughs> and hope you're going to get a bunch of Republicans right. to or register. On campus, or on, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you go to uh, supermarkets and or Walmart or Target or whatever mm -hmm. in the Northeast Heights. Mm -hmm. So it's to me, I'm going. That's a very simple strategy. Yeah. There's nothing illegal with it. It's and I think the reaction from the Democrats is, "Darn, why didn't we think of that?" <laughs> so, but. But I think it's a good idea, yeah. and I think it's a fair, normal part of the process. And if we can get more people registered, 
Democrats or Republicans or declined states. I don't care. Good point there. Interestingly, uh, Dan, the, the official word is they're not leaning on anyone to be a Republican or a Democrat or an independent. It's just you get to free, you know, freely choose. But you know, I mean, it would seem pretty simple that they're looking for Republican. It's interesting you know. that we're having this conversation mm -hmm. when every time in the AFL-CIU, AFL-CIO, or any of the collective bargaining organizations or the AFSCME meets, I'm not sure they're extending invitations to Republicans to come in and <laughs> offer an opportunity to their members to be enrolled. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it's, you know, as long as you're not breaking the law, I think the bigger story back on, you know, what I said earlier about the whole issue, the state representative who's out working on behalf of the party uh, registering the Hispanics mm -hmm. for the Republican Party is the individual taking on the sitting state senator. Right. So right. it's it's an interesting Mr. Gallegos. Mr. Gallegos. Representative Gallegos. Gallegos. It's an interesting. Mm -hmm. um, it's an interesting coordinated effort. It looks like um, you know to do this. Look, I, I think the Republican Party. At some point, there's no doubt that the Republican Party has been working to attract people of color and minorities. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think getting people to register because you show up at their safety meeting is one thing. Getting them turn out to listen to what your issues are and vote is another. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, when, when the party keeps, you know, pushing out there a bunch of, you know, 70-year-old rich white guys and saying, we're the ones to tell you how to do this, I'm, I'm not sure it's really going to play well for, mm -hmm. for the party long term. And, mm -hmm. and we've missed, we're missing many opportunities. Uh, to attract folks and, 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 and talk about the issues and staying away from the identity politics. But we just can't seem to, you know, miss the These opportunity. These it's, it's, that's hard to avoid, no matter what you do. Christine, what's interesting when you think about, you know, Lee County had f a 40% turnout. That's just not going to work if you're on a Republican. Eddy County barely cracked 50% when you think about this. Something had to change if you're on the Republican side of things. Maybe your candidates. Yeah, but, well, there you go. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, mm -hmm. I find this fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, I am a, a proponent of Democratic participation with a small d. Mm. And so I'm delighted to see that actually the parties may be in competition to engage in voter enhancement as right. opposed to voter suppression. It's wonderful to not have to talk about voter suppression right. and actually debate on how we're going to go out and enfranchise more and more people because I think an expanded electorate is a great thing. Having said that, I also think that the Republicans have their work cut out for them because it's going to be quite complicated. Mm -hmm interesting oil field workers what immediate came to my mind is how much of them are a transient population are they non-residents right. are they non-citizens there may be very well some folks who are undocumented or live in mixed status families right. and all of this is going to be very complicated in terms of both as dan mentioned a two-step process registration yeah. but then turnout and persuasion to vote for your candidates right. and so even having said that the 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 bottom line in new mexico as a matter of fact nationally is mm -hmm. that hispanics tend to vote for the democratic party candidates that's still the case right. in 2018 we saw that big time yep. uh, the increasing electorate is declined to state or independent but you still have to convince then a whole lot of folks not only to register turnout 
and vote for your candidate. Good points there. You know, Julianne, when you think about it too, President Trump has made his intentions clear about New Mexico. You look at the three GOP folks running for CD2 down there, their allegiance to Mr. Trump is pretty solid. They're not shying away from him at all. Does that cloud any of this? Uh, not cloud, maybe not a good word there, but does, does that impact any of this as, as we go along here? Sorry about that, any Trump well, supporters? I think Sorry I have that. to agree that as a journalist, I think <laughs> it's very important for people with all kinds of political views and no views, um, people who are still learning, to get involved and register to vote and take a serious look at the issues in their community. Right. Um, and yes, in that part of New Mexico, particularly the, the Permian Basin versus you know the Four Corners area, um, down there in the south there is a contested congressional race that's coming, but you know we were kind of kicking around all the people have been talking about this for a while, right. that the, um, you know, Zochi Torres Small, who won that race, um, has done a good job representing mm -hmm. that district in Congress so far. Mm -hmm. She hasn't gotten herself in trouble. She's said that she's opposed to an outright ban on fracking, which, you know, positions her in that community. And so, you know, the GOP has an uphill battle uh, and they've got three candidates sort of, you know, um, going at it for the primary so far. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it is a, a pretty complicated uh, situation down there. The other thing that's interesting to me is that Steve Pierce is the Republican Party chairman right now. He's very familiar with um, the people who work in the oil fields and the um, managers of the large companies that, you know, make the money down there. This is where Steve Pierce earned his wealth before sure. and during his time in Congress. And so, um, you know, he, if, if anybody knows how to rally that uh, constituency, you mm -hmm. know, it could be him. Mm -hmm. Any danger or any thought that, on Christine's point, that there may in fact be some, I'm just going to say it, illegal folks, undocumented folks that might turn out to be on the on the Republican side of the registry. I think that might be the first time it happened in New Mexico. I don't think so, <laughs> but wouldn't that no, be kind of a mess I'm, for Republicans well, though? There's always well, a, you sure. know. The thing about it though mm -hmm. is you're taking the word, uh, we have made it so simple yeah. to register to vote. You don't have to prove who you are at all. Mm -hmm. So the registrar is taking the word of this individual that I am a citizen, that I am doing, and this is my home address. So it's not the registrar, therefore, i.e. the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. It would not be any more than it would be the Democrat Party okay. unless they deliberately knew it. And Gina, I'll tell you that, I would tell you, that um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, in a disclaimer, working in my work capacity, we work with oil and gas stuff, mm -hmm. you're probably going to be less likely to get illegal immigrants those requirements to get on those sites pretty stringent. Are they? I'm okay. saying it, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Yeah. I know. Not I'm, talk, so. I'm yeah. talking yeah. about the background checks and the and the, the multiple layers of things that have to be done. Sure. You, you can find you can find some of the folks that service that may run out and and do something real quick out there. But those employees that work on those sites, they're pretty. I mean, that intellectual property that they're trying to protect, they put a ton of resources yeah. into making sure the people that are out there should be out there. That makes sense. Can I quickly add uh, an addendum? I was not saying that fraud is going to be a major concern. Uh, what I'm saying is that as you reach out to a new electorate, an electorate that has not been contacted, that a very complicated situation can present itself. And we know that there are a number of people who may be citizens, permanent residents, 
and undocumented in That's the right. same families or family circles. Right. So I'm talking about the complicated path to enfranchisement, right. but not as fraud. That's right. I'm talking about the networks that they want right. to mobilize. And, the, and, the normal and course of things. finding That's these right. folks uh, uh, agreeing with a Republican agenda. That's right, good points there. Out of time for our election talk this week, we'll be back with this group to discuss the role of lobbyists at the Roundhouse and whether it's time to, to professionalize New Mexico's legislators. Now, after the break, what's in a word? We talk socialism with an expert. Socialism, it is a buzzword in this year's elections for sure, particularly in the presidential election and particularly with Bernie Sanders. But what exactly does socialism mean? And how is it being used as a political tool in these campaigns? We wanted to find out. So senior producer Matt Grubbs sat down again this week with a UNM professor this time, Matthew Simpson from the Political Science Department, to talk about what it is everyone else seems to be talking about. Here you go. You've been hearing a lot about socialism in this election cycle. And regardless of who wins the Democratic nomination, you're going to hear a lot more. But socialism can mean different things to different people, and especially on the campaign trail, it can be more of a symbol than anything else. Looking for clarity, NMIF senior producer Matt Grubbs asked UNM professor Matthew Simpson to sit down and talk about what everyone seems to be talking about. Matthew Simpson is a professor at the University of New Mexico. Thanks for being here. My pleasure, thank you. You have a doctorate in philosophy, um, but how do we describe this? A soft spot for politics? Or? Well, I've always loved the, the political part of philosophy, political theory and political philosophy. And uh, it's been a passion of mine since I was in college. And so I went to graduate school and, and here I am. <laughs> You're one of those people um, who can help us understand um, the different things that we mean or signal um, when we're talking about socialism. Um, does socialism exist on a spectrum? I, I think it does. Socialism is fundamentally an ideology, like capitalism or communism. It just means a, a way of thinking about the world, a set of values and ideas for making sense of things and ultimately trying to change things. And like any of those other terms, uh, socialism can, it can mean different things to different people, I, I think, and, and from maybe more extreme to less extreme forms. Okay. Um, are, is there a difference between uh, democracy and socialism? Well, socialism is really an, an economic arrangement, whereas democracy is a political arrangement. So you could have one without the other. Uh, the key idea of socialism as an ideology is the idea that economic institutions and economic policy should be arranged to benefit the whole society, and in particular benefit the people at the, the lowest Lower, lower rungs of society. And that could be compatible with democratic institutions or, or not. And so in, in the socialist economies that have existed around the world, some of them have been democratic and some of them haven't. Okay. Uh, Bernie Sanders, we hear, calls himself a democratic socialist. Um, is that an established term and uh, what would be the hallmarks of that? I think in calling himself a democratic socialist, he's trying to distinguish himself from the, the authoritarian or anti-democratic forms of socialism that have existed and that exist today. Regimes like the Soviet Union or maybe Cuba or, or Venezuela under Chavez. 
he's trying to distance himself from that, that form of socialism. And so I think by, by flagging his, his perspective as democratic socialism, I think he's trying to point us more towards countries like Denmark or Sweden that have socialist economic policy, but, but democratic forms of government. Okay, and we look at um, countries like Denmark and Sweden, they do have private ownership of, of industrial sectors, things like that, don't they? Absolutely, I, and I think that's part of some of the, the confusion that exists today, that socialism has taken different forms in, in different places. And so countries like the Soviet Union didn't have market economies, really. They had planned economies that had strict restrictions on property rights, markets, pricing mechanisms, and so on. And that's not what exists in countries like Denmark that really do have market economies with free enterprise and private ownership of the means of production and so on. They just have a very, very robust so social safety net that tries to provide real security to people at, at the bottom. And uh, that kind of market socialism, you know, I think is, is what Sanders has in mind. Okay. Um, <clears throat> is the goal of that to um, bring the people at the bottom up to a higher level and sort of, I, I guess, boost society in general from there? I think that's right. Certainly in, in the speeches that he gives and, and really has been giving for, for decades, that, that's his idea. You know, he really seems to have this belief that in, in the U.S. today, the basic economic institutions and policies really funnel the nation's wealth to a relatively small number of people in a way that's not, not just in Sanders' view. And his alternative to that is to create institutions and policies that would take the, the wealth that comes from our cooperating together in an economic system and just try to make sure that everybody that participates in that system and contributes to that system shares in the benefits in a, a more, in, in his view, a more equitable or just way. Um, you talk about contributing to that system. Um, countries like Denmark um, have a much higher tax burden than the U.S. Um, to the extent that you're aware, what are they getting for their money? Well, I th obviously it will vary a little bit from country to country. But, it, but if you look at Sanders' major proposals, things like Medicare for All would basically be a single-payer guaranteed provision of, of health care. Um, his idea for the Green New Deal would be to try to provide incentives for renewable energies, um, a publicly funded education you know, through the university level, mm -hmm. um, parental leave for both uh, mothers and fathers when they have children, guaranteed protections in, in the workplace against firing for reasons other than cause. These are, I think, basic principles that Sanders thinks should be part of any modern modern economy that, that many countries in the world have and, and the U.S. just doesn't right now. Sure. So when we think of like a Denmark or a Sweden, they do have um, a guaranteed college education if you, if you want it, that sort of thing? Uh, as far as I know. Uh, sure. I, I'm not an expert on the educational policy in those countries. But, but yes, I mean, the, um, the idea that, that education through the university level is a basic right. You know, in the U.S., we treat education through through the high school level is a basic right. And then after that, you know, people are relatively on their own, depending on the state they live in. Okay. But there's no national funding uh, for, for post-secondary education uh, the way there is in, in 
most other G7 countries. Yeah. Okay. Um, it, it seems like the other side of socialism is um, what we hear in the president's State of the Union. Um, what I see in my email inbox um, from anyone who's campaigning as a Republican for public office is warning against the dangers of socialism. Um, do countries that implement something like a single payer healthcare system, do they have a tendency to, um, to move toward more um, what we would consider socialist programs? You know, I, th I think it's a really important question and there's not a simple answer. Socialism is fundamentally about economic policy. So there, there's no reason to expect that if a country adopted more socialist economic policies, that its democratic institutions would, would necessarily er erode. In other words, I don't think that you can really argue that m a more socialist economic policy would necessarily lead to um, a more authoritarian or centralized uh, undemocratic form of government. But I think there are people that, that see that as a danger. You know, they look at countries like Venezuela and there's, there's a lot to be concerned about there. I was just gonna say, um, you mentioned under uh, Hugo Chavez, um, there were, um, was a more authoritarian um, socialist regime. Um, the president has expressed support for Juan Guaido, um, who is also a socialist, um, over Nicolas Maduro, who is also a socialist. <laughs> um, so it, it can get pretty confusing. Um, what do people need to know about the, the particulars, I guess, of uh, the differences? Well, I think, I think the most important thing is to distinguish between political processes and economic policy. So democracy is a political process, and I think Sanders and, and most of us value the, the fundamental constitutional democratic institutions of American politics and want to see those get stronger, not weaker. And the question is, can those institutions be wedded to a more socialist, a more uh, redistributive economic policy? And I, I do think pulling those two things apart is, is important and understanding that when someone like Sanders talks about socialism, he is talking about Denmark, he's not talking about Venezuela. And some people m might not like the, the system in Denmark, but at least to understand that sort of that's what he has in mind. He's not talking about the nationalization of industry, for example, or um, doing away with, with property rights. Okay. Uh, do folks have a tendency to confuse socialism with communism, and what are the distinctions there? Uh, com official communism that, that comes from Karl, Karl Marx really advocates the doing away with private property altogether and the, the public ownership of the whole economy. Um, there aren't many people today who, even, even in Cuba or Venezuela, there aren't many people who have pushed for that extreme form of, of communism, and, and it has never existed. I mean, the, the, there's no place where that's actually existed in history. The, uh, countries like the Soviet Union or, or Venezuela have nationalized industries um, it, to some degree. Um, and so I think that's the closest that, that uh, any existing countries have come to, to real communism. And, and of course that has not worked out well in terms of raising the standard of living of, of ordinary people. Those kinds of economic experiments have in general not been very successful. And I think that's why you know, pe people who hear the word socialism, if they associate it with that, you know, instead of say with Scandinavian socialism, you know, that, that's why they, they feel some concern. Matthew Simpson, thanks for taking the time with us. We appreciate it. It's been my pleasure.
Lobbying, always a hot topic, and especially coming out of the recently completed 30-day legislative session. New numbers out that say that more than $5,000 a day was spent by lobbyists on things like meals, receptions, other perk for, perks for lawmakers. And it had us wondering in the conversations that are also going on about professionalizing our legislative pool, our lawmakers being professional lawmakers instead of uh, citizen lawmakers as they currently are, what impact might that have on this lobbyist influence? So we turn it over to the line to kick off the end of this week's show with a discussion about professional lawmakers and lobbyists. Lobbyists spend money on lawmakers every legislative session. That's just the way our state government operates. Now, this past session, lobbyists and their clients spent $151,000. That's more than $5,000 a day, actually, on meals, receptions, and other perks for legislators. Dan McKay highlighted those reports for the Albuquerque Journal. As citizen lawmakers, you know, translate that as unpaid. New Mexico's legislators rely a lot on the expertise of lobbyists. Expertise is one thing, but do lobbyists have too much influence over lawmakers. Is more transparency part of that answer? And Dan, fairly enough here, there have been a number of changes to lobbyist reporting. Are those changes effective in your mind as you watch or do we have some more to go here? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think this is, you know, to me, and I've said this for a long time, this is a problem. This is a, a, resol a resolution looking for a problem. Um, you know, it, yes, it's gotten better. I mean, when I first got elected, you could write, you know, you could handwrite your finance report and write constituent dinner and, you know, and send it in. Right. You know, now there's there's significant more transparency. You know, I just think there's this, I mean, Gene, you know, even the intro to this story, right? Mm -hmm. That's a little more than $5,000 a day. Mm -hmm. There's 112 members of the legislature. Mm -hmm. And then there's another 250 staff members. Mm -hmm. And then there's another 100, at least 112, you know, receptionist secretaries that are working for those legislators. I mean, you're talking over a thousand people that are in the daily grind of a legislative session Spending $5,000 a day doesn't seem like, an, I mean, it just doesn't seem like a lot of money to me. I mean, it does if you were like, hey, we, you know, we spent $150,000 a day. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, I just, I think that at the end of the day, yes, the lobbyists have access. I don't think they have any more access than the average citizen does, clearly unless you're carrying a gun, uh, to get into the Capitol and walk around. I mean, getting out to see your local legislator is not a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, I just, you know, I think that this is not a, we've, we've shown, you know, the attorney general, uh, the current attorney general has shown his desire to go after people that violate the public trust when it comes to, you know, whether it's state senators, whether it's uh, secretary of state folks. So I think, you know, I mean, I think at the end of the day, this is, this, there's always going to be the hint of impropriety, but at $5,000 a day, touching on probably four or 500 people, a day. I mean, I just, I just mm -hmm. don't think that's a lot of money. Senator Snyder, would you agree with that? Is that uh, just it all washes out at the end of the day, just a little bit for everybody? It doesn't have well, that much impact. First of all, anybody that thinks that buying me two pieces of pizza on the Senate floor at midnight is going to change my vote on something is absolutely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, it took three for me. It took three. Okay. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, we all have our. Everyone has a line. line. That's right. <laughs> but I, I look at it and they say, uh, the, the one they used to get me all the time about mm -hmm. was oil and gas um, and uh, banking. Right. And I'd go, well, first of all, I didn't suddenly become enamored with oil and gas because they gave me a co campaign contribution. 80% right. of my family is in the oil and gas business in Texas mm -hmm. or in some form or fashion. Mm -hmm. So 
I already knew about the industry. I learned about the massive impact it has in New Mexico. So to say that, oh, she's owned and controlled by oil and gas is silly. Mm -hmm. Why didn't you come and ask, why do I support this? Let me kind of spin that around on you a little bit, yeah. and Chrissy, I'm uh -huh. interested in your thought on this too. If we professionalize our legislators, they get paid, in other words, and have a paid staff, and we don't have to rely on those lobbyists as much anymore, is that the same thing for you? Is it just, is it just about that's information? The way, that's the way it works in D.C., right? They don't rely on lobbyists at all. Right. Well, I, I hear you. I hear you. Well, that's a good point. The, the thing about is it, it really the, just uh, the information? Quick point that I want to uh -huh. make is we learn very quickly. Uh, I was fortunate. I had lobbied before I became a senator. Right. So I was aware of most of the lobbyists. Mm -hmm. And the ones that are there that are professional lobbyists that are there all the time, or even I knew many of the League of Women Voters or the uh, ARP people. Sure. They were the same ones every year. Sure. You learn which lobbyist you can trust. Okay. Whether they, I had three categories. One is smile and nod because <laughs> I'm not believing a word you're saying. Right. Two is that makes sense, but I better verify. And the other was I can take it to the back. You smiled gotcha. and nodded at me for seven years. I, was like, I know. We <laughs> see all this time. That explains a lot, Senator. Now I get it. Christine Sierra, among the, amongst the biggest spenders, it might you know surprise some people. Conservation voters in New Mexico, Press uh, Health Plan, Comcast, University of New Mexico. But you know yeah. th these are not evil entities no. looking to get. And I'm not you know. going to use the term special interest because oh, that immediately dismissed uh, the legitimacy of interest groups. Gotcha. I, when I taught, I called them interest groups. Gotcha. And yes, uh, of various, uh, from various arenas, corporate unions, uh, nonprofits, uh, and everything in between, uh, they try to influence mm -hmm. uh, legislators mm -hmm. or congresspeople. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of an equal opportunity to an extent. Uh, labor unions heavily favor Democrats right. and corporations heavily favor Republicans. So there is a partisan twist to there. But they will also go after incumbents in the sense of supporting who is influential, committee chairs and all of that. And yeah. so it's way complicated. What I think is the concern is to try to reduce undue influence or unethical behavior. Right. And that is a really gray area. Right. It's a good thing we have an ethics commission because they got their work cut out for them. Mm -hmm. But that's a gray area. Mm -hmm. What basically we teach or I taught in political science was that, of course, interest groups want to uh, approach members with benefits. It's just that some have a whole lot more benefits to approach with, That's a good point. but at the same time, it's legislators will say, but that doesn't influence my vote on this particular bill. Gotcha. That is very difficult to prove. Gotcha. I happen to true. like Charles Keating from Arizona when he was busted for his yes. <laughs> unethical savings and loan approach to members of Congress, he, they asked him, does your money pay for influence? And he says, well, I certainly hope it does. That's right. <laughs> and so that's, right. that's the situation we're looking at, yeah. is that we can't be Pollyannish about it. That's right. uh, there is a place for transparency, absolutely, mm -hmm. for keeping members accountable yep. and insisting on some kind of ethical oversight. The point's there. You know, Julianne, the next report comes out in May, and I hear Dan's point that from a legislator's point of view, it may not be that big of an issue, but I'm flipping it around the lens from the public's point of view about public trust. What if it shows, I don't know, a certain legislator just takes a whole lot of money versus 
not a whole lot of money. The next person, do you know what I mean? It, and how Having do we that parse system out? system in place is very important. I mean, yeah. we have a, a tracking and reporting system for a reason. And I think right. it's important to note also in Dan McKay's report that he points out, hey, if you print out all the lobbyist reports and you add up the bottom line, you don't get the same total that the Secretary of State's system gives you. The difference that's, is almost $50,000. Yeah, that's not good. So that's concerning to me, and, and mm -hmm. it's not a lot of money, um, although $50,000 would change my life, and I think many of the people who yep. are wa watching the show. That's right. um, so that transparency piece is important for the public trust. It is important for the you know checks and balances. You won't know if a particular company has an outsized influence, as you mentioned, or an inappropriate mm -hmm. um, amount of spending and you know, I'm not saying speculating what that might be, but you won't know if those tracking systems you know, don't work. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's important. I also personally think that you know, Jeff Steinborn's idea that every lobbyist ought to have a name tag that explains clearly and very largely who they work for. I, I think of it more like a NASCAR, only it's like a jacket that has patches on it. You know, I think it should like just be really... They look like traders in the New York Stock Yeah, Park. what? I think that Green would be... jackets are all with P&M. Green jackets are all with P&M. But, you know, I, I just want to say this. You know, the $50,000 sounds, mm -hmm. $50, sounds like a big number. Yeah. And it is a big number. And sure. it's life-changing for anybody. Sure. When you break it down by 112 members, it's $446. So, I mean, I think, you know, we like to come out and say, we got this problem that was $100,000 spent or $50,000 spent. I think we've shown in the last few years that... When there's been things done awry, people taking money, people spending money illegally, people cutting deals, they've been prosecuted, they've gone after them. Mm -hmm. I think that we're working in the right place and moving in the right direction. Good stuff. We'll have, we'll have to do it for this week. Sorry, Diane, my fault. Thanks to all our panelists for brushing up on all these topics and for sharing their thoughts. I have a couple final thoughts of my own in just a moment.